Blog Talk Radio. Original one. Hip hop, 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 hip hop,
Town, Mr. Gibbs Town. The cook, original one. How do we be? We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop that we don't stop. You see, it started a long time ago and it wasn't a show. We gave birth to a style like a precocious child. Feeling the passion for life, erasing away all the strife. Telling our tales with verbal mail, putting honey on the blade, creating language to persuade. Share who we've always been. Always a blessing, never a sin. We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop and we don't stop. Since our mother gave birth to everyone on earth. So we echo her call. And always walk tall. Cause we're hip to the world, so we create black pearls. Everyone can wear. Everyone can share. We can't live in despair. So we shine everywhere. On and on. On and on. On and on. We welcome everyone back to Africa on the Move as your host, Brother Africa. It's always an honor, a privilege to come into your homes this evening where we can speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. Today our theme is part two, deception, control, and power. We'll be discussing these features throughout the program, and like always, we invite you to come and join us by dialing in at 323-679. O eight four one hit one and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. This is Africa on the Move, so we're gonna get started with our party right now by traveling down the road of liberation by introducing you to our political panelists and analysts for today's program. We first would like to bring in Brother Haki and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamakamashoki. <coughs> Here I am with, with the African Awareness, and of course, you know, I think it's institution building. But before we can seriously talk about institution building, I think it's important that we discard certain myths. Excuse me, I got a cold. Uh, it's important that we discard certain myths. Uh, one is that we live in democracy. Uh, one of the things that they're clear. When you look at the functioning of the economic system, it's very, very clear that some people are more free or some people are certainly more um, endowed than others. In that context, then we understand the control that oligarchs will in the society. So to understand the power that oligarchs have, oligarchs have in the society, I did this piece, and I think it provides some clarity in terms of the fundamental uh, real inequality that's built into the system and why the rich can continue to get rich and the rest of us to get poorer and poorer. Now, check this out. The oligarchs, defined as especially wealthy by virtue 
of access to money. Benefits of being wealthy does not does have negative connotations, not just for human beings, but for the planet as well. Financial systems structured to filter large streams of money to the wealthy and perils of all. Much of this transfer of money to the wealthy results in economic schemes seeking continuous economic growth, which promotes inefficiencies endangering both the economy and the planet itself. Economic harm manifests itself in lower interest rates that inevitably impacts treasury bonds that reduces government's revenues, which promotes inequality. Larger-term economic harm results in global warming, which facilitates famine, which complicates access to food and water humans must have to survive. While these problems figure prominently in the minds of poor people, oligarchs have a different concern. Their concerns center around how to increase their wealth and the maintenance of that wealth. Typically, this amendment for the wealth is solved by controlling politicians through the use of donations or bribes. According to the Center for Responsive Politics, the top 25 wealthiest individuals in the U.S. finance politicians to the tune of $573 million, $892,284 in 2018. Now, according to the Open Secrets in 2020, the previous amounts was exceeded by a billion dollars, with all indications the amount of deductions will continue to rise. Even though Secret Society assessed of impact of dark money, uh, money secretly funded to politicians using shell companies or political nonprofits, the origin of such large sums clearly emanate from those with deep pockets. Incidentally, it should be pointed out that more than half of congressmen are million, congresspeople are millionaires. Even though some come to Congress independently wealthy, the irony is the larger they reside in Congress, the more wealthy they become, both Republican and Democrat. Now, the role of qualitative easing, or QE, or government printing of money to boost asset prices of assets, yachts, and so forth, owned by the wealthy is well documented. More insidious methodology employed by the state to facilitate the flow of funds into the Algot's bank accounts is government programs allocating specific amount of money for express societal needs. This allocated amounts of money enacted by Congress via amendments often do not find its way to the intended target. These funds distributed to Wall Street to be dispersed for specific purposes are often hijacked or repackaged for uses other than what Congress had intended. In the case of COVID-19 stimulus, a program specifically to provide loans to small businesses, $13.4 billion out of $14.3 billion were dispersed to accounts different from bank account numbers on the original loan applications according to Small Business Administration. The report went on to say out of $62.7 billion, $58 billion was dispersed to the same applicants using the same IP address with a computer, a computer ID number or email, business address, or bank account number, totaling more than $1.1 billion in COVID-19 loans. Now, the corpus behind this fraud was some of the biggest corporations in America and all over 100 corp- large corporations from the IT industry to health services, from the energy sector to consumer products, took part in this grand embezzlement, specifically to ensure the continuation in part of dividend payments to investors. Now, what were the repercussions for criminal behavior by large corporations or the Department of Treasury in conjunction with the Wall Street? None. The most recent fraud benefiting the wealth involves a rental assistance program which seeks to prevent evictions by providing operation funds to landlords. Government statistics states U.S. taxpayers contribute $46.5 trillion for a rental assistance program. Of this, amount only $3 billion has been allocated to landlords, according to CNBC. $43.5 billion was never accounted for. Despite the availability of funds to prevent evictions between December 2020 to March 2021, eviction lab states in six states, 31 cities, 480,456 people were evicted. Despite $25 trillion, 
allocated by Congress for emergency rental assistance program approved in December 27, 2020, $21.5 billion allocated March 11, 2021 under the Consolidated Appropriations and American Rescue, Ice, Rescue Plan Acts, which include 15 states plus Washington, D.C. Only 10% of the funds have been allocated. Just what is the legal authorization of Wall Street to hold on to legal extension funds for the poor? There are no legal precedents justifying the withholding of funds by Wall Street, but economic precedent does exist. In assessing qualitative easing, the artificial value equated to prop up asset prices like houses, property, stocks, and bonds uh, compounds the government's ability to raise revenues. Obviously, in an attempt to raise revenues, government imposes harsh, heavier taxes on the poor. This strategy does nothing to halt budget deficits because the poor have limited incomes. Meanwhile, taxes on assets values continue to rise, and the government's ability to tax these assets are constrained by tax law and accounting methods, making tax avoidance possible for the oligarchs. This reduction in taxes poses a systematic risk to capitalism, and because of this uncertainty, Wall Street serves as a safety valve in an attempt to guard against systematic disruptions when credit demand dries up. In other words, the government's ability to repay the Federal Reserve determines if money will be provided to the U.S. government. In the world of capitalism, Wall Street serves a special niche. Regarded as the world center of money and finance, its role is to protect capital. In other words, protect those who are wealthy. Poor people are seen as an impediment, a minor irritation. When Wall Street will host 90% of funds allocated by Congress to help people, specifically poor people, oligarchs see this as a, as a necessity of capital. Authority good money after bad, capitalists fundamentally agree. The question of poverty is fundamentally a question of motivational weakness, and by dispersing funds to the poor, it limits the possibility of providing those same funds to the productive class, i.e., the oligarchs. This line of thinking can best be demonstrated by the inner workings of capitalism. Historically, when the economy was more inclusive during the 30s and 40s, the economy reflected the value and participation rate of most of the citizens. Now, when I say that with a caveat, keep in mind, I'm not talking about African people, because African people was excluded from the programs to increase, wants, increase wealth in society. So let's be clear on that point. With a functioning economy, high employment, low housing costs, debt was easily monetized. In fact, $1 in debt back in the 30s and 40s created 2 to $3 of GDP growth. Fast forward to 1980, according to Stacey Herbert, it takes 7 to $9 to create $1 of GDP growth. In other words, with fewer participation rates in the economy, the economy growth is negatively affected. With lower growth, the, result of the direct result of finance capitalism, dollars as a store of value takes on a new meaning. But those who should have access to dollars are those capable of managing a declining commodity. The implication being, investing in poor people is like throwing money away. In a world of declining capitalism, Wall Street reserves the right to utilize money in a way that is beneficial to the oligarchs, themselves included. Given capitalism's instability or crisis every 17 years, Wall Street does, does what it sees as logical. That is, manage, capital the best, manage capitalism the best way it can, hoping to compile enough money in the process to flee before capitalism collapses. In watching billionaires free in the U.S., it, can, it is very, very clear that oligarchs know the name of the game. And I think it's important that people in the society understand the name of the game. And so when someone says this, this is democracy, understand uh, their, their, their position is, is a very foolhardy one. And I close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'd like to welcome Brother Moses to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Moses. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. Uh, my name is Robert Andrew Moses, and um, I want to talk about the Marxist movement for a moment. Um, basically, read something I wrote back in September 13th, um, 2013, and basically it's towards the Marxist movement. It's called the God Question. Essentially, Christianity versus Trotskyism. Dear friends, after much consideration, I have decided to criticize the trend within the working class movement for justice and peace. The Zionists deny the truth of Jesus' teachings on internationalism and against the restoration of Israel as advocated by the Zionists of his day. True, many Trotskyists are anti-Zionists in the political struggle, yet ideologically they have not thoroughly broken with Jewish tradition. This is manifest in the anarchy of production of childbirth. The most important decision morally one makes is when and under what conditions one should father or mother another human. Christianity is about defense of the fatherland, i.e. the mother consciously the father of her child. Like Karl Marx and so many others, the children are labeled with the name of their father. This may seem like a small matter, but communism is a godless ideology and has no morality, only ethics. Professional revolutionaries are concerned with getting the job done, and this is accomplished by which behavior is judged. V.I. Lennon pointed out that morality belongs to the era of religion. Marx proclaimed religion to be the opiate of the masses. The materialist knows only human behavior, and there is no God. Jesus lived at a time when answering the God question was vital to human progress. Without a vision, the people perish. Without revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement. Jesus tackled the issues and reconciled humans and God. Quote, I am the way, the truth, and the light, unquote. Wise people recognize the correctness of his position for it has meaning, especially for the Palestinian people. As Chairman I pointed out, the critical contradiction for the international movement of the working class is the national liberation struggle versus imperialism and not the imperialism versus the socialist camp. History has proven the correctness of this view. Trotskyism is the ideology threatening the advancement of the communist movement. Interestingly, the greatest defenders of socialism everywhere except where it exists have now generally accepted the existence of socialism, and there is less talk of, quote, socialism can't exist in one country, deformed worker state, etc. unquote. The attack on J.B. Stalin and Mao Zedong are a direct result of Trotskyism and played a critical role in the collapse of the Soviet Union. I maintain there is one God, Jesus, and that Mao is his messenger. In struggle, Robert. So thank you. Thank you, Brother Mo Brother Moses. Next we go to our sister Eleanor. We'd like to welcome Eleanor to Africa on the move. Welcome, Sister Eleanor. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa. Thank you everyone. And uh thank you for tuning in. Uh it's been a a, a hectic week on, on this planet and I stand in solidarity with the Afghani people the Palestinian people and all oppressed people everywhere. 
and thank everyone for listening, and I hope that you will call in and share your thoughts and uh, knowledge with us this evening. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Right now what we're going to do is we're going to go into a rubbish station break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss the first segment of this program, what's going on in your world and the community. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move.
set the world on fire. We're going to set on fire right now. We'd like to welcome everyone back to Africa on the Move. We're in the seat. We're going to take the heat. As we define it, we're going to stand behind it. With our political panel and analysts, they're going to now set this world on fire right now. I'm sharing with you what's going on in their world and the community. We also send an Ollie Branch out to you where you can call in and participate during the segment on what's going on in your world and the community by dialing 323-679-0841, hit 1, and we will acknowledge the last four numbers. So let's set this world on fire, Brother Haki. What's going on in your world and the community, Brother Haki? Well, Brother Africa, I got to speak a little bit about um, uh, what's happening with uh, Brother Sumi Akoli. Now, one of the things that we all understand that the U.S. is the largest purveyor of violence in the world, and as a consequence, it has the most political prisoners in the world. But certainly, one of the political prisoners who's been in, the, been in prison for the longest period of time is Sunni Ada Akoli. And despite the, uh, the uh, very difficult situation in terms of being incarcerated, you know, this brother remains you know, revolutionary. So I want to just read this, this, this piece in terms of as a, as a tribute, you know, to Brother Sunni Ali Akoli. Now, Sunni Ali Akoli, a true freedom fighter, has language in U.S. prisons, uh, U.S. torture chambers, or prisons for over 48 years. Tried and convicted by the state of New Jersey, utilizing dubious, even conflicting evidence against him, Sunni Ali Akoli's continuous imprisonment underscores the brutal disregard for justice and equality before the law in the U.S. Currently, Sunni Ali Akoli is 84 years of age and poor mental and physical health. These ailments are exacerbated by a criminal justice system that is committed to the debasement and dehumanization of those unfortunate to find themselves ensnared by this grisly institution. Unfortunately, the, the punishment meted out to political prisoners is even more heinous. Sumiani Kordi, a mathematician by trade, poses unique challenges for the prison system. Possessing math skills, cognitive skills that sharpens one's analytical skills, teaching poorly educated inmates the value of math poses challenges for the system who maintain control by reinforcing conditions in the prison to maximize its sense of powerlessness. Math tends to empower, opening up differences to addressing daily challenges. Sunni Ali Kordi's math skills and political acumen, like all political prisoners, has to figure prominently in the prison administration's thinking because of the potential influence Sunni Ali Kordi wields and the self-assuredness of his cause. Now, I was pleased to have read an article affirming the commitment of four black law enforcement groups committed to the release of Sunni Ali Kordi uh, from prison. <clears throat> As part of an amicus brief detailing New Jersey's indifference to racial justice and its improprieties of the state parole board, the brief outlines Sunni Kordi's deteriorated mental and physical condition and his exposure to COVID-19, which he currently has. This condition poses real-life or death implications for him since the prison system refuses to offer adequate health care and in many instances refuses medical care for him at all. Now, the driving reason for so much love and respect for Sunni Ali and advocate for his freedom is not just the selfish acts putting the needs of the community before his own, but the symbolism he embodies. Adversaries with great resources tend to be confident by utilizing a mix of propaganda and violence. They can bully the weak or the masses of people into subsist, excuse me, submission or subservience. While this strategy succeeds a lot of times, it does not impact the totality of society. Implicit in ruling class strategy is the legitimization figures whose interests square loudly with the, square exactly with the ruling class. Using Malcolm X analogy, the House Negro's interest 
rarely benefited the field Negro. In other words, the kind of change the oppressed desire could not, will not materialize by individuals who see, uh, see self-interest, their interest as all that matters. Policies that produce more of the same or dismiss the structural nature of the injustice or at very best can only appease people in power. An example is the fight to end police brutality. Numerous policies have been implemented by police departments, but the issue persists. To the extent police brutality has lessened quantitatively, this milestone is attributed to the movements in the streets proclaiming enough is enough. In fact, even though police killings have increased nationally, police killings in large cities have actually declined. Large cities tend to have larger demographics with larger African populations residing in them. The fact, according to 530 organization, increases the police brutality of killings in suburban and rural areas have actually increased. <clears throat> Suggests education does impact social political policy. Accuracy to the system is no guarantee justice will be afforded those who do not fight for justice. The realization of brazen killing of Africans has reached a crescendo was not lost on police who realized African people are being pushed too far. However, the desired change of ameliorating police killings will not be achieved by validating the institutions of the land or pursuing avenues outside the prevailing institutions to effect needed change. In this regard, Sunyata Kohli, like other revolutionaries, established a precedent in which standing up to oppression becomes obligatory when the oppression becomes too great. From a psychological perspective, poor people in capitalist societies are routinely beaten down and seen as weak or ineffectual. These views of the wealthy get reinforced by socioeconomic institutions that validate the poor's powerlessness by erecting barriers attesting to the weakness of poor people. A good example is blaming the poor for homelessness, when in reality, homelessness is a result of political choices made by the capitalists. Another example is the indignity of checkpoints, presumably to prevent terrorism. Ironically, the real terrorists, the intelligence community, or military leaders are not subject to these same indignities. Sunni Al-Akhali's commitment to a new paradigm forced the ruling class to reevaluate its weakness. Because he fought back, the political inclination to victimize the supposedly weak resulted in new assessments by the capitalists as to maintain the oppression of the masses of people. Even though conservative movements, in this case the ruling class, spent millions of dollars to push the country to the right during the 80s, concerns about revolutionary move- movements occupied the minds of many economic elites, compelling them to see the poor people. According to the Heritage Foundation and ultra-right-wing think tanks, liberal and leftist forces have not been vanquished or neutralized by any means. They continue to plot and negate against free market capitalism. Since the establishment, since the establishment left has never threatened capitalism, one could surmise the plotters are those ideologically opposed to capitalism and its exploitation, which reside outside former political structures. By underestimating Sunan Akhori's struggle to the advancement of the human African struggle, is to not understand dialectics and the opposing forces of pro-oppression versus anti-oppression. We send our love and support for Brother Suniyala Kohli, a true African soldier, and hopes that he be unshackled to take his rightful place in society and all the accolades history affords him. And I close that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Brother Moses. Yeah, well, it's um, been an interesting week. Um, the Natural Alliance of, I mean, Natural Network, the Natural Network, uh, I don't even remember the name of it. Al Shopton's organization um, made their march yesterday, and 20,000 people or so they're claiming um, 
we have more than still have more than two thousand children in in the hospital, and as I haven't gotten any new statistics since the four hundred children lost their lives last week. It was up to four hundred. I don't know if other children had lost their lives, so we still need to keep our attention on the pandemic and uh trying to help each other on planet earth to uh bring this 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 uh respiratory illness to a halt anything that affects the respiratory system is very easily spread and it's spreading like the wildfires that are spreading as a result of global warming so um i just want to Thank you for allowing me to participate in this evening's show, and uh, and uh, I would urge once again pe- progressive people to participate uh, in in things like the uh, the yesterday's event, uh, what well, today's event with the Cubans. Now, folks who had cars should have picked up other folks and get them out and spread the word and, and make things happen. If they just want to be a few people that can repeat the same names over and over again, they're not organizing and they're not building uh, organization within their community. So we really have to begin to put our actions where our words are. And uh, thank you. That's that's what's been happening in my week. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor, and to our listening audience. You're listening to Africa on the Move. This is the 29th day of August 2021. What we're going to do right now, we're going to go into our theme tonight, which is part two, deception, control, and power. What we're going to do right now, we would like to just let you know that the sources that we'll be listening to uh, from this point on, can be viewed on YouTube. And the first particular um, video we have taken to have a discussion theme as relates to deception, control, and power is titled CIA Secret Brainwashing Experiment. Former patient sued U.S. government in 1984. We're going to let you listen to a clipping of it, and when we come back, we can get our feedback, and we'd like to have your feedback on this particular subject area and this particular clipping. So right now, let's go to the source, and we'll be right back. The Fifth Estate. Good evening. I'm Eric Malley. Nine Canadians who were the unwitting victims of CIA brainwashing experiments are suing the United States government. But so far, the Canadian government has done nothing to help them. If I were in charge of a government to whom nine citizens that we are suing for have been brainwashed without their knowing, have had their lives impaired, and have it done by a foreign agency, undercover without the government of Canada knowing it, I would find a way to help those people instead of hindering them.
four years ago, there were some startling revelations about the activities of the CIA in Canada. The American Intelligence Agency had paid for a series of brainwashing experiments under a project codenamed MKUltra. The tests were conducted in secret in the United States and in Canada at a mental hospital attached to McGill University. Experimental drugs, including LSD, were administered to human guinea pigs. The patients were never told that their treatment was part of a CIA experiment. Nine Canadians are now suing the U.S. government for a million dollars apiece. They charge that their lives were disrupted forever as a result of the brainwashing. Despite the fact that the CIA operated secretly in Canada to fund these medical experiments on Canadian citizens, the federal government in Ottawa has joined hands with the government in Washington to hold back vital information which might at last reveal all the sordid details. In Winnipeg, Val Orlico spends a lot of time tending her plants. It's one of the few hobbies she has left. She used to devour books and write long letters. Now she can't concentrate on a book for more than a single page, and writing a letter is beyond her. She's on medication 24 hours a day. If she wasn't married to David Orlico, an NDP member of Parliament, she might never have learned the full story of what happened to her. That's very good. I better get out the tomatoes and the green pepper and... In 1956, suffering from depression after childbirth, Mrs. Orlico was referred by her Winnipeg doctor to a top psychiatrist in Montreal. Unknowingly, she was about to become part of a cruel CIA experiment, codenamed MK-Ultra. In Langley, Virginia, outside of Washington, stands the headquarters of the Central Intelligence Agency, protected by walls of secrecy as high as the trees. Stored inside computers like this one is what's left of the CIA files on the MK-Ultra project. Convinced the Soviets and Chinese had perfected brainwashing during the Korean War, the agency sought to perfect its own techniques, both to protect its agents and to use as a weapon. Who, who did you meet with in the safe house? The CIA man overseeing the project was John Gittinger. There was continued pressure put upon anybody within uh, the agency in connection with trying to explain or understand uh, brainwashing. So we were charged with rather an elaborate attempt to try to find out chemical, psychological, any kind of means <clears throat> that people could use to influence the behavior of the people. In Montreal, on the side of the mountain overlooking the city, stands an ancestral home bearing a name worthy of an Edgar Allan Poe horror tale, Ravenscrag. Donated to McGill, Ravenscrag became the Allen Memorial Institute for the Treatment of Mental Illness. Here the CIA channeled money for MKUltra, subproject 68, which became a real-life horror tale. The project chief in Montreal was Dr. Ewan Cameron, world-renowned chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at McGill and director of the Allen Memorial Institute. The CIA secretly funded the medical experiments through a front in New York City called, of all things, the Society for the Protection of Human Ecology. 
Documents show that the agency had been impressed with earlier work done at McGill in sensory deprivation, work that was useful in designing sophisticated torture techniques later on. But at the time, brainwashing looked even more promising, and Dr. Cameron was the perfect one to carry out the work, an American citizen with a world-class reputation operating outside of the United States. Dr. Cameron certainly had the credentials. At various times, president of the Canadian, the American, and even the World Psychiatric Association. These are the days and hours are the occasions. In an address to colleagues from around the world, Cameron showed that he certainly knew the potential of the human mind for good and bad. And it is his mind, no less, which may destroy mankind. Val Orlico came to the Allen for her postpartum depression. Everybody in the hospital was very much in awe of Dr. Cameron, and he strode the halls like a giant. And people would say, oh, there but for God goes God. And to me, I thought, how could he possibly ever take me for a patient? Who am I? I mean, this great man who's done all these marvelous things, and, uh, boy, I better work hard, and I better do everything that he tells me to do, and, you know, I don't want to lose this opportunity to get well. Like Mrs. Orlico, Mrs. Janine Huard of Montreal came to Dr. Cameron depressed after childbirth. The depression was made worse by a hearing problem that coincided with the birth of her child. She, too, was in awe of Dr. Cameron. He was a very, very uh, impressive man. And I was told he was the best doctor in Amer North America. So um, he would um, look at you a few minutes, ask you a few questions, and then proceed with uh, the treatments. But I never saw him once in all the times that I saw him that I wasn't afraid. Every time I went down to his office, I would shake with fear. And every time I'd see him coming down the hall, I'd shake with fear. But I adored him. Dr. Elliot Emanuel knew Cameron. He was uh, an authoritarian, ruthless, power-hungry, nervous, tense, angry man. Not very nice. At Ravenscraig, Dr. Cameron went further with drugs and electric shock treatments than any of the U.S. researchers in the MKUltra project dared. His aim was to wipe the mind clean. Then he would implant new messages by forcing the patient to listen to a hypnotic repetition as many as a quarter of a million times. This was called psychic driving. Most of the drugs used in the program were experimental and some dangerous. There was the tranquilizer artane, a paralysis-inducing anectine, and curare, which pygmies tipped their arrows with to paralyze victims. Bulbocapnine, another experimental tranquilizer, and lysergic acid diethylamide, the hallucinogen LSD. In her room at Ravenscrag, Mrs. Orlico waited for her first treatment. Well, I saw Trey with um, hypodermic, with a needle, a syringe, and uh, the card on it had my name, so I looked a little more closely, and it was lysergic acid diethylamide, 
and my husband was a druggist, and I knew a lot of drugs, but I'd never heard of that one. And uh, so I phoned a friend and uh, who was a psychiatric nurse, and I said, do you know what it is? And she said, I never heard of it. But she had a friend who was a psychiatrist, so she phoned her friend, and she called me back, and she said, um, he said that this stuff causes poisonous psychosis. She said he said not to take it. Well, I thought, you know, he's a very Freudian psychiatrist and doesn't believe in any medication of any kind. And after all, here's Dr. Cameron. I mean, he's the big doctor and he's, you know, he's known all over the world and he wouldn't do anything that would harm me, etc. And so I took the injection, but I didn't like it. And it really did create a poisonous psychosis. LSD, with all its frightening mental images, was scarcely known at the time. But the CIA secretly brought some in from Switzerland, where it had just been developed. The room became very distorted, and I thought my bones were all melting. And uh, I, I just wanted to scream that I wanted to get out of there. And I saw the squirrels outside, and I thought, they're not the squirrels, I'm the squirrel. I'm in this cage and I can't get out. And I started to throw myself from side to side in the room. And I couldn't write. They had given me a pencil and paper and asked me to write down, but I couldn't write. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't focus. I couldn't... I don't know. It was like some kind of funny hell I'd fallen into and I couldn't get out. And I don't know how long that went on. It was just a terrible nightmare. And I just felt that my life was threatened. I could never go back to what I'd been. Robert Logie of Vancouver was 18 when he came to the Allen complaining of trembling and severe leg pains, diagnosed as psychosomatic. Like Mrs. Orlico and Mrs. Huard, he had no inkling he was to be part of a CIA experiment. The uh, LSD was... Uh very horrifying and uh, they gave it to me for about 12 or 15 times. One minute I would see the doctor there, the next minute I wouldn't see him there and uh, they were asking me all kinds of questions and uh, I remember them telling me that I was getting smaller and smaller and I really felt myself getting smaller and uh, they were bringing me back in time, way back, you know. At one point I almost felt like I was just about to be uh, born. <laughs> really that far back in memory and uh, they were really really probing uh, asking all kinds of questions and uh, I felt I didn't have any control I had to answer I didn't feel I had any control I was completely uh, like they had complete control over me Mrs. Huard like the others was forced to pay for the so-called treatment massive electric shocks and all the drugs they would give me as much as 40 pills a day. And uh, I would ask the nurse, what is that? They would say it's a new drug and they only name it by a number. What did all those drugs do to you? How did they make well, you feel? Well, I, um, I was very, very strong, well-powered. So these drugs kind kind of... Uh, desensitized me. They would uh, put lower my uh, 
my reactions. They would lower my resistance. As well as the experimental drugs and massive electric shock treatments, Mrs. Huard was subjected to psychic driving. Hypnotic-like messages were repeated over and over to a sleeping patient, sometimes for as long as 16 hours in a row. They were a key part of the mind control experiment. This is how Mrs. Huard remembers one of the messages. Why are you running away from your responsibilities, Janine? Why, Janine? I would try very strongly not to be, not to let my mind be capturing all the messages, but they would lower my resistance so much with the other drugs, but I, could, I couldn't do otherwise than listen. Did you ever ask them how any of this was making you better? No, I didn't ask questions. I was just say, I don't want to go through it again. And I would cry. I didn't want to, you know. I knew it. Way down in my heart, I knew it wasn't good. But... Uh, you know, how could you fight? You're in a, in a hospital where it's supposed to be the best, with the best doctors, so what can you do? I'd say, I can't. I can't take it anymore. I can't stand it. I don't think this is doing me any good. I feel worse. And he'd walk down the hall a little way with me and put his arm on my shoulder. And come on now, Lassie, you know you're going to do it. And finally I'd say, well, okay. And off we'd go to my room and he would give me another injection and then pat me on the shoulder and off he'd be again. I had LSD, I believe, a total of 14 times. And uh, sometimes there would be four days between the injections and sometimes there would be one consecutive day after the other. And uh, some of them I managed to write down things in my notes. Dr. Cameron. A newly declassified CIA document shows there was at least one voice of protest at the agency as the experiments got underway. One agent wrote, Does Project Officer approve these immoral and inhuman tests? I suggest that all who are in favor of the above intended operation volunteer their heads for use in Dr. So-and-so's noble project. The names were deleted. In her hospital room, a terrified Mrs. Orlico tried to hide like a child at the sound of Dr. Cameron's approaching footsteps. I heard him coming, and I hid in the washroom in my room. And I thought, well, I'll go and sit on the toilet, nobody will see me. Anyhow, that didn't work because um, he knocked on the door, and he said, now, come on, Lassie, you know you're in there, and come on, you come out and let me give you your injection. And I said, no, I'm not taking any more injections. I can't do it. I don't care if I die. I can't. I can't do it anymore because this is killing me and that's all there is to it. I can't do it. Well, he wasn't very happy about it. And, um, however, after a little discussion, he turned on his heel and left the room. The electric shock treatments were administered on an unprecedented scale. It was called depatterning. 
The mind was short-circuited so the psychic driving hypnotic messages could be planted on a clean slate. There is now no known use of electric shocks on such a scale. Even in Soviet mental asylums, where political crimes are punished. Psychiatrist and former colleague of Dr. Cameron, Dr. Elliot Emanuel. As you probably know, uh, electroshock treatment has been given for depression for something like 40 years now. It's a very successful and uh, useful treatment for severe depression that doesn't respond to other things. But depatterning is a use of electroshock treatment in a totally different way, in which instead of giving the shocks, say, two or three times a week, uh, they're given two or three times a day for three or four weeks, reducing the patient to a sort of animal, vegetable state from which it's hoped that they would recover in a, uh, a more healthy state of mind. It didn't work. I was there for a while, and I thought, I, I don't want to stay here, and I, and I started to run away from the uh, hospital, and they grabbed me, and then they put me on sleep treatment. And that, they kept you asleep for 23 days, and while I was asleep, they were shocking the heck out of me with electric shocks and playing tapes. Uh, there was another lady who had uh, the same kind of psychic driving that I did, and she was a very wiry, slender lady, and with lots of pep and zip, you know, and she'd go to the dances and this and that, and one day she just wasn't there. And uh, when we asked where she went, they said, oh, well, you know, she's gone to another hospital. Well, sometime later, I was in the day hospital, and I happened to ask a nurse if she'd heard what had happened to this lady. And she said, oh, that's her sitting over there. And I looked, and there was a fat lady that just looked like she was made out of dough. She didn't know me. She didn't know herself. She didn't know anybody. She was gone. Now that's a death. Did you ever try and get away from there? Did you ever say, I'm just not going back? I tried. Uh, I was home for the weekend. And uh, I had a pass for the weekend. That's how they call it. So when I was there, I said, I'm not going back there. So I telephoned or somebody else in the house telephoned. And they said, if you're not coming back, we're sending the police after you. So I remember being so upset. I was crying. I didn't want to go in. And uh, it was really like a concentration camp. There was a gentleman who jumped off the roof of the Allen. I don't think he had LSD, but he had uh, sleep therapy with, um, with psychic driving, you know, with the driving tapes under his pillow. And they told him he was going to go home. And he'd just come out of sleep therapy. And uh, he just jumped, he said, went around, big smile on his face, said goodbye to everybody, went up on the roof and jumped off and landed at the back door of the Atlan, which was a dreadful, awful thing. I don't think he was more than 30. And he was just gone. Just gone. And there was this big washed area at the back door. Nobody would go in and out of that back door for a long time. And everybody in the, in the hospital spoke in hushed tones and 
Everybody was affected. They would not talk about it. It was as though it did not happen. In 1973, all MK Ultra files under the control of the Technical Services Division Chief of the CIA were ordered destroyed by the director, Richard Helms. But in a bureaucracy as vast as the Central Intelligence Agency, it's difficult to destroy everything. And the damning evidence of the Cameron Project surfaced after a Freedom of Information Act suit. It revealed Mrs. Orlico had reason for her nightmares and her doubts. I've heard that it was the most brutal program under that under MK Ultra in the States and in Canada. That this was the most brutal. It was an awful feeling to realize when I found this out that the man whom I had thought cared about what happened to me didn't give a damn. I was a fly. Just a fly. Her husband, David Orlico, NDP Member of Parliament for 22 years, remembers the cost. We had Blue Cross coverage, but we didn't have... Uh, but Blue Cross did not cover treatment in a mental hospital. So uh, what we did uh, after the first year was to sell the house, which was really the only money that we had. And my daughter and I moved in with, uh, with the house mother. And uh, we stayed there almost three years. It was, it was tough, but the financial cost was really a small part of the cost. If you're talking about cost, it really, it really disrupted our lives. Mrs. Orlico sued the Allen Memorial Institute, and last year it quietly settled out of court for $50,000. But that's only the amount she estimates she had to pay for what she thought was treatment. Apart from giving Mrs. Orlico her money back, the Allen has done nothing to compensate Cameron's other victims. But in the U.S., a former CIA director, Stansfield Turner, promised the Congress the agency would try and track down victims of the MKUltra project in both Canada and the U.S. so they might get compensation. The CIA wrote the Allen this recently declassified letter. Addressed to Maurice Danger, then director, it said, It has been our understanding that there are no remaining records of Dr. Cameron's research that might reveal the identities of patients under his care during the time period in question. However, by way of leaving no stone unturned, we now inquire whether this information might be reconstituted through patient records, financial records, or other hospital records. Sincerely yours, Daniel B. Silver, General Counsel, CIA. So even the CIA made some effort to find the victims, but little help from Montreal. There is no record of the Allen ever attempting a search of all its medical records, although Cameron's successor admits it would be easy enough to do. CIA documents show that 53 people in Montreal were subjected to the MKUltra experiments, but only nine of those have been positively identified. Apart from Orlico, Huard, and Logie, there were three Montreal housewives, one of whom is now institutionalized. There's a Montreal businessman who never really got his life together again after the experiments, and another man who's been destitute for most of the time since. Ironically enough, one of the victims is now a psychiatrist practicing in eastern Ontario. She obviously functions well enough, but after the experiments, ten years of her memory was wiped right out. 
The McGill Project was abruptly terminated in 1964, and so Dr. Cameron returned to the United States. Three years later, he died suddenly of a heart attack. Subsequent evaluation of Cameron's work in Montreal by his successor showed that the intensive shock therapy was not only medically useless, but potentially dangerous. Cameron, though, never revealed how much he knew about the CIA sponsorship of his work. Robert Logie was later given cortisone treatment for the pains in his leg that brought him to the Allen in the first place. It worked, but his mind is a different story. He now has joined with Mrs. Orlico, Madame Huard, and six other Canadians in a massive lawsuit against the United States government. They contend that they sought treatment and instead were made unwitting victims of CIA experiments. The nine Canadians are seeking one million dollars apiece in damages from the U.S. government. The CIA intimidates many American law firms, but this case is being fought by a lawyer who defended Lillian Hellman and Arthur Miller during the McCarthy witch hunts for communists. In preparation, the lawyers have interrogated every CIA agent involved in MKUltra, including former director Helms. With the trial expected to start soon, Joseph Raw sums up the case with his junior partner, James Turner. What what we get out of Gittinger? Uh, John Gittinger is the former CIA staff agent who testified that at his request, the CIA contacted Cameron and informed him that a front in New York would support his work. As a result of that, Cameron received CIA funds to finance the LSD and brainwashing experiment. In other words, Cameron, all he did was what the CIA was in effect asking him to do. Yeah, And what he said he was going to do, and he did it. And and then they paid him money for it. And then what about uh, Gottlieb now? We got a lot of stuff out of Gottlieb. Here's one of his uh, depositions. We uh, got him, I take it. He said, I'm going to wash my hands of this. I'm approve the project, but I don't have to take care of the Canadian citizens who are going to be affected. Is that fair? That's fair. He admitted that they took no steps whatsoever to guarantee that people wouldn't be injured if it could be avoided or to make sure that people even knew that they were participating in an experiment. Well, this guy Gottlieb's got quite a record, doesn't he, uh, on negligent action ahead of time, I mean, before this ever... Uh... Uh, he was personally involved in an experiment that resulted in the death of a... Uh, U.S. Army. Is that the one where they uh, put the uh, LSD in the Quantro of a guy named Olson? Yeah, and then he jumped out of a window and committed suicide in New York City. They yeah. managed to cover that up, too. I like a man who was general counsel of the CIA. His name's Larry Houston. And at that time, he said this was culpable negligence. He was a general counsel. And they went on, left a guy on the job who had uh, been guilty, according to their own lawyer, of a culpable negligence. What about Helms? We took his deposition too. It's right here. Yeah, it's an awful thick deposition. He didn't remember a whole lot. There's a, a major case of forget me. It's the only uh, thing that he, we really got out of him was that uh, he instructed uh, Gottlieb, uh, the CIA's Dr. Gottlieb, to destroy the records. When the story broke about the covert CIA activities on Canadian soil, the United States sent a formal apology to the Trudeau government. But external affairs minister Alan McCacken has refused to release that document to Mrs. Orlico and the others in the lawsuit. This declassified State Department letter shows why. Addressed to the Canadian Embassy, it reads, 
This is with reference to your request for the views of the U.S. intelligence community concerning possible release by the Canadian government of certain documents relating to the Orlico matter. Your request was given careful review on the basis of which it has been requested that the Canadian government withhold from public disclosure the documents in question. We've moved heaven and earth to get the correspondence and the documents and the discussions between the Canadian government and the United States. The United States won't give it to us because they're covering up uh, their wrong. The Canadian government won't give it to us because they're scared of the United States government. Both of them are holding back all of the information about this. I think the case could be broken if the Canadian government would say to the CIA, we're not going to cover up for you any longer. We're going to allow... We're going to give this material to Mr. Orlico for his case. Well, if the Canadian government has this apology from the U.S., why in the world do you think they wouldn't release it? Oh, I just think uh, the Canadian government's a little bit uh, uh, like international wimps uh, in the case of uh, the United States. I don't know why they're so scared of us. We're not going to do anything. I don't think the 7th Army is going to attack Montreal because you give us that material. I understand, though, that the, that the American position is that this kind of CIA material can't be released for national security reasons. Maybe that's true. Well, security, my neck. First, the CIA, the, the, everything they forget. Then when they have to stop forgetting because uh, it's ludicrous, then they say it's all national security. What is national security? about the apologies of the United States to Canada. They get very belligerent, the Canadians, with the Russians when they shoot down the uh, 007 with some Canadian citizens. But when the CIA covertly does something to all the citizens, ruins the lives of many of these citizens, well, the Canadian government is doing nothing. I don't know why. Canada made forceful representations on behalf of the Toronto businessman who was kidnapped by bounty hunters taken back to Florida. That wouldn't indicate that they're afraid to make a ruckus down here? That was a pretty easy situation. I mean, my God, you kidnap a Canadian and take him to the United States, heavens above. Uh, and furthermore, you, who do you have to fight there? A couple of bounty hunters. Here you're fighting the CIA. That scares the, the Canada. I'm surprised that if your case is as strong as you say that the American government isn't trying to get an out-of-court settlement, pay out a bunch of money and just hope it'll go away. When the CIA went into this brainwashing stuff, what they call the MK Ultra program, when they went into that, they injured lots more people than the nine we are suing for. They injured a great many other people. Here in, here in the United States? Here in the United States. They may feel that they've got so many skeletons in their closet that settling with us, even though we're clearly right and they would like it to go away, would hurt them as a precedent. I can't think of any other reason that they're being so really rough on us. I think there is a duty on the government to, uh, to uh, release, in a matter such as this, all of the information it has. Alan Lawrence is a conservative justice critic in the Commons. There's been government complicity or government negligence, so be it, you know. Uh, 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 it, it's far better to make a full disclosure and, and, a, and a full confession of your sins in a matter such as this. It's always a difficult thing for anybody to sue a government or sue a, an agency of a government. And if you don't have the cooperation of your own government in doing it, uh, you have uh, a few strikes against you right off the bat. If the process was reversed, if it was some sort of a, 
uh, a secretive uh, Canadian operation taking place in the United States, I'm sure all hell would break loose uh, down there as far as beating of breasts and waving of flags and whatnot. If the material came from the States, perhaps they're bound by, if not law, good manners to not turn it over if the source of the information doesn't want it turned over. I uh, don't know about manners. Uh, I don't know about international manners very much. But I know this. If I were in charge of a government to whom nine citizens that we are suing for have been brainwashed without their knowing, have had their lives impaired, and have it done by a foreign agency, undercover without the government of Canada knowing it, I would find a way to help those people instead of hindering them. We tried to ask external affairs minister McKechn why the government of Canada is not helping these Canadian citizens who are victimized by agents of another country. But for more than two months, Mr. McKechn has been unavailable to discuss the matter. What do you want to tell Mr. McKechn, for example, about what happened to you? How you feel about it now? I would tell him to try what we've been through and see what he would have to say after. Because uh, only when you go through such an experience, one can say how bad it can be and uh, how painful. I'd say, come on, get off your horse and help us. We need some help from our government. We are innocent victims of something that happened that should never have been. And you can't make it. You can't put us back where we were. But at least do something to help us now. Do something to stand up and say this can't happen in Canada. What can you possibly get for your clients out of this case? You can't get their health back. That's not possible. And there are older people and some of them may die during this uh, stonewalling by the CIA. And some of them may get worse. One of them at least is in an institution now. I mean, the thing is very much needed needing of speed by the uh, to get recommend. You can get some money. That's all you can get. That's all you can get when a doctor misoperates on you. you. You don't get your health back. There's no way we can get our health, their health back. But what we can get them is some funds to help ameliorate their old age uh, with the damage that's been done to them by this lousy uh, performance that occurred through the CIA by Dr. Cameron mistreating them and hurting them. One thing which triggered Mrs. Huard's initial depression was growing deafness in one ear. That was later corrected with minor surgery. But no surgery can undo Dr. Cameron's work at Ravenscraig. I cannot go to sleep without any medication. I have uh, migraine headaches that last for a week at the time. Doctors cannot find the cause. Uh, I have uh, slight amnesia. I have a lot of trouble to concentrate. I've never been able to sleep without medication since the sleep treatment. I went through years and years and years of severe depressions. I dream about it. I all my all my waking hours I think about it. It's uh, it's eating me up. I've been hospitalized. When I first went home to Winnipeg, I attempted to 
take my own life because I couldn't endure the way I felt. And uh, I have a, a chronic need. I'm very dependent on other people. And I have a chronic depression, which at times gets worse. Not being with my family, not being able to follow a career, not being able to study anymore, which I wanted to do very much. Uh, I would say it cost me my life.
that you're welcome back to Africa on the Moon. You were just recently listening to the documentary, which you can be on YouTube, titled CIA's Secret Brainwashing Experiment, Foreign Patients to the U.S. Government. Now, as we listen to this document, we're talking about a theme tonight, which is perception, control, and power. Which in this case, when you listen to this particular document, see all the features of our theme tonight. It's question of perception, control, and power. What we'd like to do is have a discourse right now with our political panel and analysts as well as you by calling in at 323-679-0841. We heard the secret experiment that was done by CIA in Canada against Kansas citizens. Um, what are some of the lessons we need to learn from this particular history and this behavior. If they've done it to citizens in other countries and they have a history of doing all kind of underhanding um, activities to undermine the interests and the will and the power of the people, if they did this back in 56, what would they not do today? So what we're going to do right now, we're going to go to our panel analysts and based upon what they heard, We'd like to get their assessments on what lessons or concerns we should have as relates to these kind of practices and behavior. We start off with Brother Haki. We'll bring him in now. Brother Haki, you heard this documentary as relates to the CIA secret brainwashing experiment. What lessons or concerns should we take from this? Yeah, well, first, Brother Africa, let me just preface. something before I respond to your question. And I want to just point this out, and I think it's important people understand the gist of what I'm about to say. But in any event, a former CIA agent, George White, back in 1971, uh, spoke to the head of the uh, CIA who oversaw MK Ultra, Sidney Golak, Gottlieb. And he, he wrote a, 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 a message to him, I'm going to read that message, and I think people will understand the implications of just why the U.S. Uh, CIA does what it does. Anyway, quote, of course, I was a very minor missionary, actually a heretic, but I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, a red-blooded American boy, lie, kill, and cheat, steal, deceive, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessings of, of the all-highest, end quote. Now, if, these, uh, if the implications come bad enough for him to, to imply somehow that the CIA uh, status is equivalent to deity or equivalent to the, to the status of a, of a god, speaks volumes in terms of the kind of arrogance, the kind of hubris that's part of the CIA. So their ability to, to, to routinely kill, uh, to assassinate, uh, to um, mess up one's life, uh, to deceive, to destroy, uh, to pit one against another, their ability to do that, they make them feel like they're God-like. So I think in that context, I think one of the things we have to say and the things that we can learn from this is that the reality is that we can expect more of this because this is something that can change. The CIA was innovated specifically for the purpose in terms of safeguarding the U.S. national interest. Now, of course, this question of national interest is a very vague concept. Nobody knows what the hell that, what the hell that really means. But apparently to the ruling elite, the national interest means that anything is going to deny them access to more and more resources around the world. And so the CIA job, you know, principally, is to make sure 
that there's no, no roadblocks in the way in terms of that, them getting access to other resources around the world. Now, the mere fact that they went to Canada to implement these wrongs, oh, by the way, uh, in the United States, over 150 uh, people have been subject to MK Ultra, people in universities, people in prisons, and the hospitals. Uh, but back to Canada, when you think about those nine individuals in Canada who were subjected, subjected to this, speaks volumes in terms of the kind of reach uh, that the CIA employed. The mere fact that the, the piece talks about the fact that um, they would, the CIA did that unbeknownst to the Canadian government. I seriously doubt that if that was the situation. I think the CIA, I think the Canada higher up did in fact know what's happening. I think one of the things that the question becomes, what is the incentive in terms of Canada officials working in the U.S. when it comes to implementing all kinds of wrongs? Well, I think the biggest one is economics. I think clearly, you know, uh, in terms of this, this globalized world, and particularly the kind of influence U.S. corporations have in Canada, I think the implication is that the goal against, against the U.S. is to go against its own interests because they control the money screens in Canada. And so, therefore, these politicians are hesitant to take on the system per se simply because if you take it on that system, it undermines their ability to make money. And so in that context, they go along with it. It's the same thing in the U.K., France, and Ger- well, to less extent in Germany, but certainly in the case of the U.K. and France, uh, who tend to go along with U.S. atrocities. Uh, but I think that we can anticipate more, more of the same, Brother Africa. I don't think anything, anything is going to change. And I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Let's go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, when we look at this documentary, the CIA secret brainwashing. Now, they talk about how they, talk about how they use language, how they define things, and maybe um, it's very deceptive. And they also talk about this old question about controlling people's minds. Now, if they have a desire to want to control the populist mind, my question to you when you look at this document, how how um, alert should people be today in terms of in terms of the reality of many things that are going on today are clearly deceptive and totally really aimed at controlling the people. So when you heard this doc, documentary, when you, when you listen to this documentary, what are some lessons that you took from it that you think our listening audience should be aware of? Brother Anthony. Um, let's see, a couple of things. Uh, one, I want to throw out uh, a quick observation. Canada is the U.S.'s closest ally. Uh, and uh, so if they would do that, uh, do that sort of thing to the citizenry of Canada, uh, then, uh, then anybody else that's an enemy that that is perceived as an enemy of U.S. interests is fair game, and uh, so pe- uh, so this is something that people have to you know keep their guard up about. That if they're willing to use this for purposes, and also uh, you know to advance their interests, and also um, uh, the. Uh, the CIA was created as an intelligence agency to safeguard U.S. interests or U.S. capitalist interests, uh, to be more specific. You know, around the world, where uh, you know, where uh, you know, wherever they may be, uh, be it in uh, 
be, be, be in other countries in the Western Hemisphere, Africa, Asia, uh, and uh, even Europe. So, uh, so, so I think we, uh, you know, we have to pay close attention to what goes on around us, and especially um, when it comes to things like healthcare. And uh, uh, people that uh, that 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 suffer from chronic conditions, or are or are or need uh, you know healthcare for any reason, uh, they should especially be on guard against uh, you know uh, you know. Uh, you know, uh, possible expect, uh, uh, being victims of experimentation. However, when uh, a person that's seriously ill or, uh, or otherwise incapacitated, they may not have that, uh, you know, their guard up at all times. So it is very important uh, that people, uh, you know, uh, you know, keep their friends in the loop as far as, uh, you know, what conditions they're undergoing and what have you. And uh, so that somebody else can keep an an eye out for your interests when you're not able to watch for those for yourself. And uh, I think that's uh, that's one lesson that, you, you know, I took away from that. And uh, also, we have education comes very important because, uh, you know, uh, what you don't know or don't understand can hurt you, especially in in, in, in a capitalist society as ruthless as the U.S. is. So I think uh, education becomes very important. And being able to do your own research becomes very critical also. Those were some of the things I took away from uh, the uh, video. So, Eleanor, your take on it? Um, I agree with Brother Anthony. We really need to um, be organized and have support around our health care and uh, especially those of us with chronic health care problems and uh, whether they're physical or psychological because there are so much is at stake. And as Brother Anthony said, if this can happen to uh, uh, Canadian citizens, where does it leave the rest of us, especially Uh, the African diaspora and indigenous people in the United States. Um, I am uh, amazed at the, um, I'll say in my situation, my caregiver is amazed at the lack of care that I've received. And she has a parent that has virtually nothing wrong with her and gets top-notch care. But from this particular Video, we really see how dangerous potentially uh, physicians are because they become greater than God. Uh, what came first, Cameron or the CIA, as the uh, 
as the, the doctor who spoke in the beginning of the video said that Cameron was an authoritarian, he was an egomaniac, and he only had his interests at heart. And, and, and these experiments that he was doing, and keep in mind, it's like right after World War II when we saw Joseph Mengele doing all these things. So we're moving, you know, there seemed to have been a progression. And here we are in 1956 continuing with this, these LSD experiments. And all of us have heard about them. I had heard about them much of my life. And then the, so the reality is, is that we need to form collectives that focus on health care. We need to uh, do checks on each other. We need to, when someone says to you, uh, a week or so ago I asked someone to look in on me and make sure that I was safe. Well, I might, when I said that to that person, they disappeared. So we need to be careful and know whether or not we're talking to responsible, cogent people. But we do need to make sure that we get support around health care. And I don't mean the patient advocate at your local hospital. And research is so essential, and we need to have others researching for you. And when your health is compromised, you need support of others because it's hard to manage yourself, fight for your life, and to do the research as well. So from this, I learned that um, uh, doctors are dangerous, that uh, uh, as we know, pharma, now I think uh, the big pharmaceuticals set up the medical school curriculum. I think doctors increasingly work for large corporations rather than working for themselves. So this puts uh, literally tens of thousands of people potentially in danger, and that it's up to the, the community to manage itself and its health and protect itself potentially from the medical uh, world. Uh, Tuskegee experiments were one thing, but this is a whole nother where someone is literally brainwashed and new memories are set in their place. Now, I see this from this article. I could see where they could do the reverse. Put one person in a place of position may not be supportive of the masses. Keep that person in position uh, for a few decades to undermine the, the lives and the development of other person's full human potential by just having them in, in place. Uh, so you can do a reverse. You can, you can very well take a, a person who's aberrated and put them in place of a, a, of a normal person. Ow! Excuse me. Of a normal person. Uh, I'm sorry. I have a kitten that jumped on me. Uh, and, and put them in place of a normal person and have just irresponsible behavior when it comes to supporting their community and supporting others. So all I can say from this article or this, this particular video is that it points out how important it is to have support, to have community support and persons who have an interest and a vestiger in making sure the people in their community are well and well cared for 
no matter what the circumstances, to the best of all of our ability. And that's what this speaks to. Because this woman, one of the one of the uh, victims, her husband was apparently in government, and uh, it devastated his family financially and otherwise. What does this mean for the working class? It means unite, organize, and support each other. You may not be around the people that you wish to be around, but you better stand up and I feel that for those who think they're not around the right person or 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 they don't know the right people, don't you can't wait. Life is not like that. You have to organize, deal with the people that will support you and assist you and assist each other in protecting our health, especially baby boomers and in an aging society. That's what this said to me, because I can't tell whether Cameron, Cameron, uh, did the CIA select him? Did he select the CIA? Did he have intentions on doing these experiments long before he joined the CIA? He's a dangerous person, and the CIA is obviously dangerous because it's depending on professionals like him, and he was a threat to public health and the public good. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Brother Moses, jump on in here. What you take from this documentary, Brother Moses? Well, 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 well. Um, the CIA is being the CIA, and that's, you know, it's, you have to understand who the CIA is and what they represent and whose interests they pursue. And, and, and then, you know, it's, not, it's no, it's, it's understandable. Um, uh, domestic policy is the same as foreign policy, so there's no there's no difference between domestic policy and foreign policy. Um, uh, CIA is this you know it's the CIA, it's the, the dirty tricks people, and um, you know I accept that, and so you know I I deal with them accordingly. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Hackey, coming back to you, when we talk about this concept of deception, control of the power, and looking at the behavior of the CIA, we know that similar to this particular um, program, what they call the MK Ultra, they have also created a program historically called Cointel Pro to undermine many movements, particularly the African movement and movements around the world. Speak a little bit about the impact of the CIA and that program called Jail Pro that people need to be aware of. Many people believe it ended back in the 60s and 70s, but I was told that once they have done something that is successful, they never stop. So your response, Brother Hackey. Brother Africa, Brother Africa, before I deal with your question, let me deal with some, some relevant stuff that has to be pointed out. Uh, one of the things, when we talk about the Sweat Project 68 or this MK Ultra program, the thing we have to understand is this process that they use in terms of brainwashing people. So when we talk about psychic driving or we talk about repetitive information being played over and over again in people's, people's minds, and we talk about the use of drugs, uh, clearly uh, it does have an impact. So when we think about something like propaganda, 
propaganda is no more than repeating a lie over and over and over again. So you get the American people to say, this is democracy. This is democracy. You keep saying it over and over again. The American people say what? The American people say, it's a democracy. And you ask them, why, based upon what? Why is it a democracy? Don't know, but it's a democracy. So clearly, the kind of same kind of principle applies. But secondly, I think one thing that when we get in terms of the process, when we start talking about the 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 patterning, the patterning, uh, it's very very interesting. So we use electrical shock specifically to reset the brain and assess. And actually, what they're doing is attempting to rewire the brain, uh, so as to make it a clean slate. So when you do that, interestingly, you know the brain is composed of both the conscious and the unconscious. To the extent that they can wipe right the, the slate clean in terms of the conscious brain, maybe more problematic in terms of the unconscious brain. So, so those things that we that we have intuitive understanding of that we don't necessarily understand why exist in our consciousness. And so, therefore, to the extent that they can wipe those memories out, it's doubtful. And so, that's going to have a very deleterious, a very negative impact in terms of one's ability to function. If on a conscious level you don't know anything, but on the subconscious level there's this information you know fighting to get out. So clearly, this is very, very destructive, and it's not like uh, they didn't, they weren't aware of that. So when the CIA uh, ordered that um, uh, from, um, from, what it, from Switzerland, was it Switzerland? So when they ordered that, 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 that LSD, they knew long before the very negative impact that LSD has on the human brain. But in superimposed upon that, brother, I just want to think, this is important that we bring this out, and the article didn't. Uh, the, during the same time, the, the, the CIA op- used an a, 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 a operation called Midnight Climax. Uh, Midnight Climax, this operation was the CIA would employ prostitutes to lure men to CIA safe houses where they would, experiment, they, they would, uh, uh, they would use them for drug experiments. Uh, the drugs that they used were ecstasy, methylene, uh, heroin, methamphetamines, barbiturates, and uh, magic mushrooms. And so they would give these men these, you know, uh, these drugs covertly through the prostitute. They're behind the glass looking at the impact those drugs have on the behavior of the men who was there. So this kind of uh, this kind of uh, insensitivity, this kind of uh, 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 disregard for humanity, which is so part and parcel of how the CIA operates, then you know we have to understand that there's nothing they won't do. And so for us to think that simply uh, you know that the, that the that the CIA is somehow is going to stop this, or the CIA is going to become more conscientious in terms of its dealings, is ludicrous. Um, and to get to your, now to get to your question, brother, after in terms of CoinTelPro. Uh, one, one of the things is that, you know, when we, when we talk about um, coin, quote, the whole funk, the whole idea of time, coin, coin pro to, is to ensure that the U.S. maintains not only its hegemony, but maintains some equilibrium in the system. So when we talk nationally, we talk about equilibrium. And so what we're talking about is that in order for this country to ruin really class to maintain power, it has to silence those who question what's going on. So people who are progressive, people who are revolutionary, People who are conscientious objectives for what is for whatever reason, those people constitute a real threat because what happens is that they compel people to actually look at the system, to critique the system, deconstruct it, and begin to understand how it really works. And the biggest danger to them, to to, to the system, is that people will, in this system, in this society, will begin to understand how the system actually works. So as a con- as, 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 so as, as so as a result of that. Uh, they, 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 they focus on the, on the Black Panthers uh, a lot. Black Panthers along with other revolutionary groups that existed in the time, during the times, in the 60s and the 70s. And they did this because one of the things that the FBI talks about a lot, 
they say, based upon their own documents, that the most intelligent individuals in the African community tend to be revolutionaries. That's their word. That's their saying. That's what they're saying. It's not what I'm saying. It's what they're saying. This is in their documents. They're saying that these people are by nature more intelligent than most African people are. And so, therefore, they have to not only monitor them, but to keep them in check. So how do you keep them in check? When you monitor them, then the thing that they perceive is outside the law or in a situation they can arbitrarily create a criminal charge, that's what they do. Uh, uh, Gijaga Pratt uh, was, was, uh, was charged with a, with a, with a, with a, a killing a uh, police officer, and he was thousands of miles from California when, the time when it happened. It doesn't matter. Geronimo Gijaga Pratt was on their list because he was a revolutionary, and he also had military training. And because of that, the, the ruling class perceived him as a threat, and so they wanted to get rid of him. And what they do is they utilize the Cointel Pro. So that when you use Corn, when the government uses the Cointel Pro, it limits the, the, the defense's opportunity to raise certain kind of information in terms of information that could that could certainly you free your free your client. Uh, those, that information is, is cannot be used, and so therefore, what essentially what it does is to make sure that it empowers the state to make it to ensure that it gets a conviction. And this is used against revolutionaries. And so when we look at Cornell Pro and we look at MK Ultra, it's all the same. It's all the same. It's all about the perpetuation of power at any expense. And so, therefore, the, the, the question in terms of justice, quite the issue of right and pushing the wrong, is irrelevant. It doesn't exist to them. They do whatever in terms of maintenance of power. The ruling class understands precisely what they're doing and the criminality of it. Earlier, I talked about the fact that billionaires are leaving this country. They're fleeing the country. They understand precisely what's going on. But it's not their job to educate the masses of people. Uh, they understand their job is to acquire as much wealth as they possibly can. In order to maintain their wealth, what they do is they keep quiet because they understand that they can engage in all kinds of criminality, and they understand as long as they keep quiet, the state will never come after them. So this kind of, this kind of malfeasance that's so much a part in terms of how the U.S. government operates, and specifically the CIA, it's just part and parcel for the courts. So no one should ever expect the CIA to do that which is just, that which is fair, that which is honest. And the mere fact that these damn politicians refuse to break up the CIA and put an end to this nonsense speaks to the kind of complicit, the complicit nature of, uh, between the CIA and these politicians. So if we think for one second these politicians are going to advocate for the interests of, 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 of people, poor people specifically, then we've got another thing coming. So clearly, Brother Africa, there is a correlation between MK Culture Ultra and Cointel Pro. Okay, and Brother Anthony, I want you to speculate for me just using your tools of analysis, Brother Anthony. When we look at this documentary and talk about talk about the issue of the Canadian government uh, seems to be in collaboration with the U.S. government and not supporting its own citizens as it relates to their citizens being used as an experiment by another foreign government. Why do you think it's the, why do you think, Brother Anthony, the Canadian government has a less of a um, um, positive response towards not aiding their own citizens when it came to the particular activity by the CIA. Because most people believe today that most governments do not represent the people in any way. They see the people as the enemy from within. Your response to that narrative, Brother Anthony? I think that is an accurate assessment, Brother Africa especially capitalist countries. And uh, it should be understood that cap that governments in capitalist countries 
uh, serve the interests of the ruling class of those countries. In other words, the ruling bourgeoisie of these capitalist societies. Only when you create a socialist society like, uh, say, the Democratic People's People's Republic of Korea, uh, Cuba, uh, Venezuela is struggling to build a socialist society, does the government represent the masses of the people? Otherwise, it serves the interests of uh, of the ruling class in that society. And I think the point, the observations that uh, Brother Haki made regard in regards to uh, Cohen and Tal Pro and MK Ultra. Uh, provide reasons for why capitalism needs to be destroyed. It cannot be reformed. And, uh, you know, and only, and uh, and uh, that is why the U.S. is so opposed to those, uh, to those people that seek their own path for development. Because it, it, it invariably leads to some uh, to some form of socialism, which is the only uh, the the only uh, which is the polar opposite of capitalism. So uh, so so that is why the U.S. Uh, you know uh, you know engages and other capitalist countries engage in wars around the world. Uh, to maintain their domination of the world and its resources, and also to maintain control, and also and also is a is a is an endless power grab, because the only the uh, there no underdeveloped uh, undeveloped unexplored areas of the world left, so the only way. The only way wealth can be distributed is through redivision of the resources of the world, and that is why, uh, you know, uh, imperialists in every corner of the world, uh, you know, seem to, uh, you, you know, tend to unite when it comes to protecting their interests. And uh, back, the more specifically to the point of Canada and the U.S. The Canadian bourgeoisie and the U.S. bourgeoisie have more in common than they do with the masses of the people that they oppress and keep under domination. That is why uh, uh, the the Canadian government, uh, you know, was uh, you know was rather quiet when uh, when these atrocities against Canadian citizens were exposed because uh, the the Canadian ruling class and the U.S. ruling class are uh, uh, have, have more similarities than people understand. And uh, so this uh, concept of nationalism 
it's the smokescreen that sends to keep the working class divided. And it has kept them divided. But the only way to uh, is, uh, uh, to overcome that is through permanent political organization. Thank you, Brother Anthony. At this point in time, you listen to Africa on the Move. We're in the seat, and we're going to take the heat as we define it. We're going to stand behind it. This is part two of a three-part series, Deception, Control, and Power. We're going to take a quick revolutionary break, and when we come back, we would like to get our panelists' final thoughts for today's program. This is Africa on the Move. Chains living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know. I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters, from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, 
where death spent many lonely nights, pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. And made it through my journey, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon, Umbrella Africa. At this particular time, we're going to go into our closing remarks for today's program, which is part two, Deception, Control, and Power. This is a two-part, three-part series, and we will continue the discussion next week, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern time. So please go out. If you listen to this program, and put it on your calendar. Join us next week at Africa on the Move. I'd like to make another announcement and remind everyone, we might have an interest of going to Cuba with us and other groups under the banner of the African Awareness Association. Please email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com or directly contact the email the African Awareness Association by emailing them all together, African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com. We look forward to meeting you, seeing you, but more importantly, going to Cuba. And showing our solidarity with our brothers and sisters, family. Give them our thanks and our gratitude for all that they have done for Africa, African people, humanity. So come and join us. The tour is from December 27th to January 3rd, 2022. Yes, we can. We're going there. So right now, we'd like to welcome you back. We're going to go back to our political panelists and analysts. We're going to give them a chance to give us their final thoughts for tonight's program. And we'll start off right now. Well, Brother Moses, Brother Moses, your final thoughts for tonight. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. I want to read a little something I wrote in the winter of 2009. We must struggle on all fronts, the political struggle for state power, the economic struggle for better conditions, especially the union, and a theoretical struggle as to the correct interpretation of our past leaders and the correct assessment of where we are and where we need to go. 
In order to triumph, we must study and practice Marxism, for the dialectical relationship between ideas and practice will develop us as revolutionary just as it developed Shea and Fidel. By assessing the real needs of real people struggling in society, we will develop a program of action that we can all agree on and rally around. The correctness or incorrectness of our ideological and political line will be proven in the struggle to obtain real gains for the working class, and in that struggle, as always, we will gain friends and make enemies. Who are our friends and who are our enemies? It's a critical line when trying to make a revolution. Our answer to these questions separates us from the Democrats, Republicans, and would-be socialists. We must keep politics in command. Rely on our land to win over the workers. And sometimes, you know, we reach an impasse where we're not having a misunderstanding. We're, we just have two separate positions, and you have to understand and accept that and move on. And um, the struggle continues on all fronts. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And next we'll make our transition to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts for tonight, Sister Eleanor. Well, I want to thank you, Brother Africa. It's uh, been a wonderful show. And I'd like just to add in, uh, uh, try to articulate again my feelings about that CIA uh, video. The CIA definitely manipulates people and brainwashes. And as Brother Key said, uh, and Brother Anthony, they just keep repeating things until the masses accept it. But also, they put people or let people stay in place that are ineffective purposely so that vital organizations do not move forward, do not make the progress that they could make. Uh, They just keep these people. They don't care if they attend demonstrations or what they do because the bottom line is they're not impacting either the micro or macro community and they're not bringing about revolution. So we need to be careful. And our health care is essential to everyone. And clearly, health care in this country is not considered a human right. So people need to stay on that. But also be careful when you see these people that seem uh, that they're, they're obstacles, they're tokens for the man. Because united, I believe the people can never be defeated. And clearly the 1% is looking out for itself globally, and they don't have the interests of workers at heart. So with that in mind, I hope everyone has a wonderful week, and thank you for allowing me to participate in this uh, wonderful forum. Thank you. Good night. Good night, Sister Eleanor. And now we go to Brother Haki. Brother Hackey, your final thoughts for tonight. I got to tell you, Brother Africa, you know, I'm, I'm disheartened when I look around and see, you know, young brothers and sisters killing each other simply because they're caught up in a system which is the diametric opposed to their just their in survival. Uh, I'm not unrealistic. I do understand that a lot of them young brothers and sisters do understand, you know, concretely, you know, how the system operates, and they understand the disadvantages they have to face in terms of survival. And so have an understand, in, in terms of understanding that, I do understand, you know, one of the things that I would never blame brothers and sisters for the predicament they find themselves in because I'm, 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 I'm politically savvy enough to know 
there is a system in place that facilitates all this. In fact, people in positions of power want to facilitate that because a lot of them keep the division going, keep the fear and mistrust going, that they can maintain power. So the only thing I would say to my young brothers and sisters, I understand your struggles, you know, and I, you know, and, uh, you know, you know, I had opportunity to talk to a lot of young brothers and sisters, you know, in, who are involved in their life, and I do understand it. But I want young brothers to understand, you know, but in, in the final analysis, in terms of the long-term picture, uh, you know, we got to seriously think about the, the long-term implications of what we do uh, and why we do it. And I do understand the immediate concern in terms of just survival. You don't have time to think about, you know, abstract theories. You don't have time to think about in terms of the rightness or wrongness of your behavior. You're concerned about putting food on the table, paying the rent, so forth and so on. So it's a very difficult situation that people find themselves confronted with. The reality is that none of that's going to change as long as capitalism exists. No matter how you whitewash it, capitalism is a vicious system. Now, people would tell you, well, the capitalism is in practice, not real capitalism. That's true. The problem is that we can't, you know, we can't uh, sit around and wait for real capitalism to be practiced because the bottom line is that in the, 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 the reality is that as the system changes, the real capitalism that we talk about is no longer of use to the ruling class. And so, the, therefore, the kind of capitalism that you ruling class practice is the kind of capitalism that is, that, is, that is useful to them. And so we have to understand it and stop saying and stop getting away from this nonsense about it's not the real capitalism. That's the same kind, that's the kind of PR, the kind of, kind of public relations the ruling class put out to deceive people to make them think, well, you know, we just act right and we just treat, treat capitalism right or do it, or we act capitalism correctly, then all these problems be eliminated. It couldn't be. Uh, it's, just not how, it's just not how systems flow. So clearly we, we, we got some issues, we got some problems in the community, but we have to think about it. And, I, and then definitely I urge people to read, read, read. And as always, Brother Africa, I encourage people to unravel the matrix because the more you unravel this insanity, the more you begin to see not only just how perilous our situation is in the society, but what we must do to survive in the society. And I close with that, Brother Africa. You have a good night. Thank you, Brother Haki. And our final thought for tonight, we will go to our Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. Uh, certainly. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Uh, and allowing me to participate uh, with the the fellow panelists on the program and to share these words with the listening audience. Uh, It is is more critical than ever that Africans get politically organized. the the, the 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 days when we can function without being organized have long been over and only and only permanent political organization will solve uh, the problems we're having with the CIA uh the capitalist parties around the world etc uh pan-africanism is the ultimate solution to the problems that African people first face worldwide. Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Please visit the All-African People's Revolutionary Party GC's website, www.a-aprp-gc.org, to learn more about our objective and program.
and history of uh, you know uh, of our struggle to build Pan Africanism, and it is necessary, and uh, it is important that people look beyond mere survival and look uh you know to to uh to live as uh to their fullest human potential and that can only be achieved under a scientific socialist society thank you for having me good night we like to thank you, Anthony, all of our political panelists and analysts for their views and perspective tonight. And, of course, thank our listening audience who tune in every Sunday at 7 p.m. to Voice of the Voiceless. We like to remind you that we're asking for your help to help spread the word that people can participate and listen to Africa on the Move every Sunday evening starting at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. In closing, we just would like to remind, remind those who want peace of the words of Brother Malcolm, where he stated that, while well, freedom, you can't have no peace. So if you truly want peace, then you must fight for freedom. Until next time, we must always try to go forward ever and backwards never, and never forget that Pan-Africanism is the key. It will set you and me free. So until then, we'll end with some music of liberation, and we'll see you next week. This is Brother Africa, and this has been Africa. On the moon. Mom, cause you have come so far. Mom, cause you have come so far. You can't get no food to eat.
my one, one. Yes, he's my father. Yes, he's my son. I can talk to him because he understands everything I go through and everything I am. He's my support system. I can't live without him. The best thing since life's bread is his kiss, his hug, his lips, his touch. And I just want the whole world to know about my black brother.
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer. To give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, cause Palestine Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed. We need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love.
That's up. That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. It's an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Calling him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy. Mossadegh. Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that's mm-hmm. his music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure. After you divorce yourself from the right wing propaganda campaign, it's all simple and plain. America could stand the game. Your president got an African name. Now who you gon' blame when they drop them bombs out of them planes? Using depleted uranium, babies looking like two-headed aliens. Follow the money trail that leads to the criminal. Ain't nothing subliminal to it. That's how they do it. See the game they run. Give a fuck if he's cunning, articulate and handsome. Afghanistan held for ransom by the hand of this black man. Neo colonial puppet. White power with a black face. He said, fuck it, I'll do it. A master of disguise, expert at telling lies. Then they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize. Should have known he was trained in Chicago. Word the chairman Fred and Mark Clark. What they do in the dark will come out in the light. Like a WikiLeaks site. So I guess Nkrumah was right. Who's ready to fight? Last stage of imperialism. I ain't kidding. In the immortal words of Marvin Gaye, this ain't living. Like... 
Bomb Obama didn't say shoot. The Jonas Brothers are here. They're out there somewhere. Sasha and Malia are huge fans. But uh, boys don't get any ideas. I have two words for you. Predator drones. <laughs> you will never see it coming. You think I'm joking? 